0: How do you know the difference between a luxury and a necessity? It seems to me that it's a moving target. A 2012 article from The Atlantic observed that over the past 100 years, things have shifted in the categories between luxury and necessity. So, for instance, in 1900, less than 10% of families owned a stove or had access to electricity or phones. But in 1915, less than 10% of families owned a car. In 1930, less than 10% of families owned a refrigerator or clothes washer. In 1945, less than 10% of families owned a clothes dryer or air conditioning. In 1960, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher or color television. In 1975, less than 10% of families owned a microwave. In 1990, less than 10% of families had a cell phone or access to the internet. One question that comes to me just at this point is, how did people in Houston survive without an air conditioner? It's something to ponder. The article concluded by noting today at least 90% of the country has a stove, electricity, car, fridge, clothes washer, air conditioning, color TV, microwave, and cell phone. Certainly, they make our lives better. They might even make us happier. But we can be assured of this. They are never enough. Would you open your Bibles with me tonight to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, and I want to read verses 32 to 34, and somebody is surely saying, wait a minute, you're shifting gears on us. Well, we read part of the text I was going to read, which is good, but I actually, as I studied this this week, decided that Luke is a good place for us to focus. He has so much to say in his story of Jesus about the right disposition toward possessions. And so we'll study Luke together tonight, and I'm just going to read these verses 31 to 34. But you keep your Bible open to the Gospel of Luke, because there is more for us to see. Let's stand together in reverence for our God and His Word to us, Luke 12, verse Thirty-one in my uh, fighter verses, we memorized verses thirty-two to thirty-four. But you'll recognize that Luke twelve thirty-one uh, is very closely parallel to Matthew six thirty-three. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves which will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a word from your word tonight. I pray that by your spirit you would apply these words to our hearts in ways that would make us more dependent on you and more useful for your kingdom purpose in this world. This is our prayer believing in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Like Matthew, Luke records Jesus' teaching to seek the kingdom. Matthew says seek first. Not only first in time, but first in importance, first in priority. The kingdom is not a moving target, though, for those who seek it, because Luke tells us, The Father has been pleased, the Father delights to give His kingdom to us, His little flock. I can't read those words without thinking about how many small town Baptist churches I have seen called little flock Baptist church. Little flock. Well, this is where it comes from. And what He teaches us is that when we realize what God has given us, We have no trouble giving things away because we have an inexhaustible treasure in heaven. Remember, as we think together about the disciplines of the Spirit, the disciplines of discipleship, that the purpose of the spiritual disciplines is the total transformation of the person. And tonight we come to the discipline of simplicity, To live simply so that we may give generously. And really, this idea of simplicity, if we might parallel it or contrast it's really the difference between simplicity and duplicity. It is, as Kierkegaard said, to will one thing, to sort of focus on one thing. And the one thing is the kingship of Christ in our lives. So think about Luke's teaching about discipleship and just track with me how he talks about this, not just in this passage, but again and again. Remember in that simple definition of discipleship in Luke 9, 23, as as Jesus turns his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, he's on his way to the cross and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow after me. In other words, it is impossible to be Jesus' disciple without also denying ourselves something. So he teaches us again as we continue to study in verse 25 of Luke chapter 9, what does it profit if we gain the whole world and lose our souls. In Luke 12, when a man asked Jesus to mediate in his dispute with his brother over his inheritance, Jesus declined. Jesus wouldn't solve their inheritance controversy, their dispute over who got what from the will. Instead, Jesus defined life as more than the accumulation of possessions. And he told a story, do you remember it? About a wealthy farmer who decided he needed more room for all of his stuff. And so he tore down all of his barns. Remember the barn builder? And he built bigger barns. A a person as wealthy as I am, he said. And don't miss how often he uses the first person personal pronoun. I, me, my, mine. I, me, my, mine. A person with all that I have would have to have larger barns, he says. And so he gets rid of his old containers and he completes his new containers just in time to be put in a container. And he inherits six feet of dirt. And now, Jesus said, who will get all of his stuff? That is the question of inheritance, isn't it? And Jesus is answering their question as if to say, you think that the great travesty in life is that your brother or your sister might get more than you. You know, I have discovered through the years that people not only fight about money in times after the funeral as we looked this morning at the story of Jacob's sons after Jacob's funeral they not only fight about possessions but have you observed as I have they fight about pictures they fight about about things that remind them of other things and memories and it's sometimes not so much what do I get but but am I getting as much as that person I remember counseling one friend and and saying but but don't you have enough to live on? And the person said, yes, but but I'm tired of that person having more than I have. Well, this comes to the heart of it, and it is exactly why this person said to Jesus, I want you to, to tell my brother to give me my inheritance. And Jesus continues in the teaching where He confronts a rich young ruler and tells him to give his things away. And it makes the young man sad. In fact... Another gospel tells us that he walks away. Mark chapter 10 says he walks away from Jesus. And by the way, Jesus does not chase him down the street saying, let's renegotiate. Instead, Jesus lets him go. Because Jesus wants him to know that nothing in the world is more important than the kingdom of God. By contrast, by the way, I couldn't help but notice Zacchaeus in chapter 19 who not only comes down from the tree, but the minute the kingdom of God becomes a reality in his stuff, this man, Zacchaeus, who has spent his whole life in in acquisition, in accumulation, he has been acquisitive. He has been stealing from people in order to fulfill his job. He gets to keep what's left over from the Roman taxes. So he raises the rate and keeps more for himself. And the minute the kingdom of God becomes a reality in his life, he can't wait to give away. I have a good friend who came to Christ in our fellowship and was baptized and after that God blessed him with a great bounty of possessions and he said to me one time, Pastor, I can't explain it to you because there was a time when I was afraid somebody from the church was going to come to me and ask me for money and now I can't wait to give away all that God has given me and consequently he has been a blessing to a number of of people and organizations and institutions. And the only explanation is the revelation of the surpassing worth of the kingship, the rule of His King, Jesus, in His life. How do we as disciples define life? One dimension, one discipline of disciples is the discipline of simplicity we simplify life Jesus seems to say in these stories that I have mentioned by divesting ourselves of excess stuff so that we may give to others and have room in our hearts for more of God Because if we have become satisfied or have filled our lives with the temporary things of this world, we may not have room for the eternal things which God wants to give to us. This is, as I prepared and I confess to those who plan worship with me, a difficult passage for me to preach on. In part because I remember when I first started reading Celebration of Discipline, I was in Austin. I had no idea that I was soon to come to Tallowood, had no idea that I would ever get to be the pastor of Tallowood. I loved where I was, and I read Celebration of Discipline, and I approached that book like I approached so many other books. How quickly can I finish this? But when I finished the first chapter, I realized the chapter wasn't finished with me. Or at least the Holy Spirit wasn't. So I slowed down and deliberately read one chapter a week, which was painstakingly slow to me to slow down and read that deliberately. But even then I discovered that I couldn't digest a chapter in a week. And especially this chapter. The chapter on simplicity wore me out. It changed the way I thought. It, it changed the way I had seen things in life. So tonight, if you will, I'm not preaching to you, but I'm just uh, renewing my interest in these things. And I discover after all these years of thinking about simplicity, I have not fully acquired the subject Well, let me speak from the overflow of what God is teaching me to say to you, first of all, to live simply is to deny ourselves and to divest ourselves of unnecessary possessions. So Jesus says, deny yourself. I would just ask, are we? Of what? Of what in our culture do we ever deny ourselves? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we find, as John Claypool says, three kinds of people. It's in this same Gospel of Luke. Only Luke tells us the story. There are people, the thieves, who say, What's yours is mine, and I'll take it if I want it. And then there are the religious figures who say, What's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. And then we have the Good Samaritan who says, What's mine is yours and I'll give it to you if you need it. It's it's almost as if, I mean just as I read through Luke this week I thought it's almost as if Jesus is just beating this drum to say to us that Luke picks up on these stories of Jesus and tells the story of Jesus in this way so that we may see that the good samaritan at great risk to his own safety went to the dying man Gave his bandages, poured, lavished his oil and wine to heal, gave him the donkey to ride on, put him up in a hotel, and offered to pay until the man was well. And I confess to you as I think about that story, am I the only one here tonight who can be a scorekeeper so that when I do for others, I Tend to keep track of it. I'm prone to tell somebody about what I've done, though I know I should not, and only afterwards sometimes do I realize that I have. But by contrast, by contrast to the Good Samaritan, I think of the one who was granted abundance and tore down his barns to store up grain and, and just so that he could eat and drink and be merry. No gratitude to God, no giving to others, just acquisition And accumulation. And when he lost his life, he had no need for any of it. And who would get his stuff? And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And these things will be given to you. They're a gift from God. God will provide your needs. Uh, God will bless you abundantly, we read. So that having all things at all times that you need, you will be able to do good, to do all the good that God wants you to do. A New York Times Magazine article reported on the uh, U.S. self-storage business. It may be a testament to our likeness to the barn builder. The United States now has 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space. That's billion with a B. What that means is that there are more than seven square feet for every person in our country. What that means is that now it is physically possible that every American could stand all at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing. Nobody would have to stand outside. We would all be covered by the roof. The United States has upward of 51,000 storage facilities, which is more than seven times the number of Starbucks. That's a lot. Isn't that a lot? That seems like that's a lot. By the early 1900s, Americans had on average twice as many possessions as they did, I'm sorry, the early 1990s, Americans had on average twice as many possessions as they did 25 years earlier. 50% of storage renters store stuff that wouldn't fit in their homes, even though the size of the average American home has doubled in the last 50 years. 15% of customers told the Self-Storage Association they were storing items that they no longer need or want. Our kids introduced us to a television show. What is it? Storage Wars? Is that the name of it? Storage Wars? We were watching avidly until our daughter walked in the room. And one of the losses of her life was that her mother and she had stored all of their stuff and then moved to Austin and those things were lost. She could envision that somebody in Louisiana had knocked on the door of their storage unit and had taken that stuff away William Penn said we need an inward life free of cumber think unencumbered clutter is is always with us and it's important for us just to get a grip on this Jesus points out in these verses right before he says don't be afraid little flock that we are prone to worry about possessions I um He says, don't worry about your life or your food or your drink or your clothes. I remember once I made a small investment in the stock market. And I have to say to you, in about three months, I realized I can't do this because I thought about it all the time. And it was so very little money. But it was all I could think about was, is it up? Is it down? Am I making money? Am I not making money? And I finally said, I can't live that way. Don McMinn, um, Gary Revis pointed out to me, Don McMinn gave This knowledge about this, a firm answer to just one question will help establish a balanced perspective on material possessions. He says, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So we might ask, when is enough of possessions enough? Everyone needs an answer to that question. Everyone needs to complete this statement. McMinn says, I have X number of possessions, and that's enough. So, for instance, years ago, after careful and deliberate thought, Don McMahon decided, I have 100 possessions, and that's enough. I own 100 different items, and that's enough for me. Then he went on to say, the impact of this decision has been significant and liberating. I've developed an immunity to the marketing and advertising that permeates our culture. I can't buy one more thing because I already have a hundred. In the same way, he says, I'm better off financially because I'm not always buying things. And I have more time to spend on important matters. So I worry less. One of the reasons Jesus teaches us about possessions and about divesting ourselves of stuff is because stuff has a way... of of not only being our possession, but of possessing us so that it dominates our thoughts. It becomes what we're worried about. And finally, McMinn says, best of all, I enjoy the wonderful, formerly elusive feeling of contentment. What did Paul say to Timothy? But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we will take nothing out of it the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 verses 5 and 6 keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because I have said to you the Lord says that I will never leave you nor forsake you God's, God's answer to our quest for stuff is to say but I've given you myself And we might agree together tonight that if the presence of God in our lives is not enough, well, nothing else ever will be. It's not as though you can buy enough stuff or own enough stuff or accumulate enough stuff or wear enough stuff or drive enough stuff to ever replace God in our lives. So in his book, Foster gives ten guidelines for possessions. And I just want to to be a voice, and I want you to hear this. You've been listening so attentively, and I thank you for that. Just listen to this. It's important that this not become a matter of legalism. So here's what we're not called upon to do, to decide who else has too much stuff. In fact, if I might sort of translate the Greek for you here and help you with that, here it is in Greek, nunya. It's none of your business what anybody else owns. And this is, and there are denominations that have taken this teaching of simplicity to the extreme and become very legalistic. And so they judge other people for what they possess. But we do have a responsibility to God to discern what He wants us to possess. And so to be careful so that we do not let things become too important to us. And so Richard Foster says we should buy things For usefulness, not for status. Does that make sense to you? So don't buy something because it's the trendy thing. But is it useful? Is it helpful to you? Do I need this? That's a good question to ask. Second of all, reject anything that produces an addiction in you. Now this is going to become difficult because I think it impinges on our use of electronics. The fact that we are glued to our, our phones. The fact that one... Uh, very nearby university um, was surveyed and the students at that university revealed that they spend 10 hours a day on electronics 10 hours what else do they do if you spent 10 hours on something that wouldn't leave much time left would it and the third thing he says is develop a habit of giving things away so the only way if we talk about the Lord calling us to divest ourselves of things. The only way really to be free from the tyranny of possessions is to spend our time giving things away. Foster tells about a 10-speed bicycle that he gave away. I remember when we moved here, some of you will remember this, we, we lived out near green trails, and one of the great thing about living out, some of you still live out near green trails, and one of the great things was, was having Cracker Barrel so close It was was a great temptation to us. It was just so much easier to go and eat Cracker Barrel than to cook. And so we ate there a lot. And you know that there's a good bit of retail therapy that goes on just outside the restaurant. Outside the the dining area, there's a lot of retail therapy. And you just almost can't walk And they make you walk through there to eat. And so you'll always see something you want. And back then, the big craze for kids was Beanie Babies. You probably have forgotten this, but I got in a bidding war with one of our members for Beanie Babies one night here at one of our silent auctions for one of our, our uh, youth activities. And, and I just remember, I was driving home from Cracker Barrel one night, and one of our sons said, I have 34 Beanie Babies. And I turned around and said, What? How did you get 34 Beanie Babies? He said, We go to Cracker Barrel a lot. (laughs) And then he complained and he said, you know, my my friend Caleb back in Cedar Park where we used to live, I accidentally left two of my Beanie Babies at his house or I would have 36 Beanie Babies. Now as a parent, as as a good and godly parent, the thought came to me, this is a teachable moment. I can teach my son about simplicity right now. I was appalled that we had somehow been coaxed into buying 34 Beanie Babies. But I said, here's what we could do about that. Chase, I'll call him by name. Chase, he's not here. That's what happens when you move off to another state. Your, father, for your father's illustrations. I said, Chase, here's what we could do. We could write Caleb a letter. And we could say, Caleb, I have hit the jackpot with Beanie Babies. I have acquired 34 since we moved here, so why don't you keep those two Beanie Babies? He says, I've got more than I need. I'm driving into our neighborhood, and it gets painfully silent behind me. And then Chase says, I have an idea, Dad. Why don't I write him a letter and say, send me my Beanie Babies now. <laughs> he missed the teachable moment. I could tell. But I tried. And after all, at the end of the day, what we parents do is try. So we hear him say in these verses, in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the poor. Why on earth would we do that? Why would we give things away? Because he says, Your father has been pleased, he's been delighted. To give you the kingdom. You didn't earn the kingdom. You didn't purchase the kingdom with all of your purchasing power. It was a gift from God. And it is such a beautiful gift. Such a wonderful gift that by comparison everything else pales. Like a pearl of great price. That once you see it you think I would give up every pearl I've ever. If you were a pearl merchant you would say I would give up every pearl I ever had. To get that one. Like the man who stumbles upon treasure in the field and says, I'll sell everything I have to buy that field so that I get that treasure. So is the kingdom of God. It is such a surpassingly great treasure that nothing compares to it at all. It's why Paul could say, but whatever things were gained to me, I now consider loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ. I, in fact, I consider all things lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, and consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness which is through faith, in Christ, I want to know Him. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and the participation of sharing in His sufferings. And could it be that when we divest ourse- ourselves of some of the stuff that we have accumulated, that we will better appreciate the gift of the kingdom that God has given us? Brian Harbour tells about a girl who gave... When their church was in a building campaign, she gave her ring to the church. As a pastor, those stories always make us nervous. Was somebody manipulated in some way? What can we do about it? The church heard about it. They responded with generosity. The pastor called the little girl and said, I want to give your ring back to you. I hear you gave it to us. I want to give it back to you. And the little girl said, I didn't give it to you. I gave it to God. And in that moment, he was uh, silenced. We don't know what to do with people who actually put the gospel into practice, with those who divest themselves. And, And we don't want to manipulate anybody, but as one set of parents said to me when I took their daughter's gift back to them, Pastor, we want our daughter to obey God. Why did you bring her gift back to us? To live simply is to divest ourselves, to deny ourselves, to divest ourselves of things to live simply is also to trust God for his provision and to treasure his person as we delight in God's presence more than anything. So notice again in this there's a lot that leads up to this story but in Luke chapter 11 verse 3 when he's teaching the Lord's prayer this is Luke's version of that it's a little different just a little bit different but but right after he says that we are to hallow his name and pray for his kingdom to come He says, we are to pray, give us each day our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. We don't ask for it until after we hallow his name and we pray for his kingdom to come. But this reminded me of the Israelites who were to trust God for manna each morning. You remember that story? And God said, I'm going to provide for you. And I want you to go out each morning and collect the manna. But don't try to store it up. Don't sort of try to hoard the manna so that you don't have to go out the next day because what God was trying to teach, what God was trying to teach the Israelites, what God is trying to teach His people today is absolute dependence on Him. Have you come to the place also where you find yourself completely dependent on God for your next breath? Don't despair. That's a great place to be. That is a place where God can teach, where God can show us the sufficiency of His grace. Seek first the kingdom. All these things will be added to you. Trust God. So life does not consist, chapter 12, verse 15, in the abundance of possessions. As an alternative to storing things up, in verses 16 to 21, He says, trust God. Trust God. So we trust Him, for instance, to clothe us. And to feed us. Pagans run after wealth, he says, but we seek our king and he gives us what we need. Simplicity is such an antidote to worry. We don't worry about life. We don't worry about clothes. We don't worry about food. Why? Because our Father who provides for the birds and the flowers cares more for us than he does for them. And He will provide for us. So life is more. It's more than that. More than food. More than clothing. Albert Schweitzer heard of another man who had accumulated 100 neckties. Somebody said, isn't that impressive? He said, no, it's interesting though, isn't it? He has 100 ties and he only has one neck. Why would you need 100 ties if you have one neck? I don't think I want to go home and count my ties. I said this would be hard for me. God feeds the birds. Worry doesn't lengthen our lives. God knows what we need. He teaches us all these things in the passage that leads up to him saying, But seek his kingdom, the kingdom of God, and these things will be given to you. Richard Byrd once said, I'm learning that a man can live profoundly without masses of things. That runs counter to the marketing of our world, I know. To make it personal, I have to say, um, my brother and his wife adopted a nephew years ago. It's one of the saddest stories I've ever known. Um, my uh, brother's brother-in-law, his wife's brother, um, had a wife, and, and on uh, deep into pregnancy, one night she awakened with a headache, she had an aneurysm, and before she died, her baby boy was delivered afterward uh, the the father of the little boy, the father was raising his son and um, and he fell in love with a dentist and and they were sharing life together, but he um, he did something that was against the law and so he was thrown in prison and he was in prison for some years, so his wife, the stepmother of the boy, raised the boy, and then the father emerged from prison. I remember when he came out of prison, we all went and played golf together, and, and he and his little boy, and it was a beautiful scene, and within a year, he died of HIV. But not knowing he had HIV from drug usage, he um, infected his wife, who also died. And my brother and his wife adopted the little boy. And in my time here at tallowood their son, James Casey, was killed by a drunk driver here in Houston in his early 20s. My brother told me about his son. We loved James. He taught us a lot about love and about life. But the amazing thing was he inherited an enormous amount of money from his parents when he was 12 years old and his mother died. But when he turned 18, the money became his. That was the way the trust was set up. And though he had all of this money from his parents, he... um, He said to my brother, would you just invest it for me? He chose not to own a car. He had hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, but he chose not to own a car. In fact, he lived in Austin where where everybody who's ever lived in Austin wants to stay. And he took public transportation around in Austin. He stayed with friends and slept on their sofa the last few months of his life. He did something extraordinary in our world. James Casey lived beneath his means. How many people you know who do that? And Just ask the credit card companies how many people live above their means. But how many people do you know who live beneath their means? This is what simplicity is. It is to say that life is not about acquisition. A friend of mine was offered a very nice, large, new television, and he deferred so that another friend received it instead. And somebody said, how could you turn that down? He said, well, I already have a TV. They said, but you don't have one like that. And he said, but I already have a TV. We live in a world that says everything must be bigger and nicer. The next car must be bigger than this car. The next house must be bigger than this house because I'm climbing a ladder and I'm competing with other people. But what if we learned to live with what we have? I still love the story of the Amish man who told his new neighbors who moved in next door. If you find anything you need, please let me know and I'll show you how you can live without it. (laughs) That's a great word. Do we live without anything? And how can we simplify our lives? What if we chose just to fast one meal a week? I ate with a friend of mine who pastored a church in this city, who pastored it well, who at my age was starting a 10-year run of incredible ministry in our city. And I said to him this week, after he visited our church recently, I don't know how he got in the back door without me seeing him. He's like six foot six. But he, he came in and I didn't see him. And he wrote me a word of encouragement. And I said, I need to talk with you. And I sat down with him this week across a meal. And I said to him, so you lived out your middle 50s to your middle 60s as well as any person I've ever known in my life. So what were the spiritual disciplines that enabled you to live the Christian life so well to lead your church so well to love our city so well he said you know it's interesting he said I didn't think about them at the time but I just decided I wanted to fast one meal a week to pray for my family that I would give up food so that I could pray for my family I know it's true because I remember one time he preached for us in Holy Week and we had a meal afterward and I said, please stay for the meal. And he said, I have something else. What he had was to pray for his family instead of eat. And I don't know what doing without something, what denying yourself something, what divesting yourself of something. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to do for you. But I'm confident that God's Word is true. And in my own experience, I have discovered that I am not able to give something up for God that ultimately hurts me. But rather that every time I do, what I receive in return is so infinitely better than what I gave up that I don't miss what I gave away. Do you know what I mean by that? I pray that we could experience that together, to have that deep sense of contentment in relationship with God, which says, I trust God to provide for my needs, so I won't spend my life scrambling in this uh, in this panting feverishness of life. And then we store up treasure in heaven because we treasure God above all. Clearly true in verse 34, where you're. Treasure is, there your heart will be also. Only as we live simply, we release to God all things so that we may receive what He wants us to have. Susie Parker was called to be a missionary to go to China to leave her family and friends behind. They gave her a farewell party with her family present. And her father was asked a question, Don't you hate to give up your daughter to go to the mission field? Mr. Parker said... Nothing I have is too precious for Jesus. When she contracted typhoid in an epidemic there in China and they brought her body back to the United States, her father was there to have the sad duty of burying his daughter and they said to Mr. Parker, I know that this is too hard for you to give up your daughter. And he said the same sentence he did when she left. I have nothing that is too precious for Jesus. Dare I ask tonight, what do we have that is so precious to us we could never release it to Jesus? All of us have a list. It may not be written down. My friend Tim LaFleur distinguished when he was here in town for me between having Jesus as a part of your life and holding Jesus as the treasure of your life. And the difference is the difference between night and day. So if Christ is our treasure, then letting go of anything for his sake is not too much to give away. Seek first God's kingdom, and all these things will be added to you as well. The first time I ever thought about simplicity was in Montana. Remember Ken Metama, Carlos? Ken uh, put out an album. One of my roommates in college had gone to pastor a church up in Washington State. I was in Montana. We met there at Glacier National Park. And He played this song for me. Do you you know it? The the shaker hymn. the, The song about simplicity. It simply says, When true simplicity is gained, To bow and to bend, We will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, Will be our delight, Till by turning, turning, We come round right. And it begins, Tis a gift to be simple. Tis a gift to be free. Tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, we will be in the valley of love's delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight. Till by turning, turning, we come round right. Pray with me. Father, I thank You for the gift of simplicity. I thank You, Lord, for the ways that You are teaching us. That only by denying ourselves and divesting ourselves, and especially in this season of preparation for Good Friday and Easter, we are reminded, Lord, of Wordsworth's words, that the world is too much with us. Late and soon, buying and spending, we've given our hearts away, and it's a sordid boon. Lord, I pray today, not for anybody else in this room, but for myself, that You would reveal to me tonight anything in my life that is more important to me than You, my King, And Father, the dearest idol I have ever known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. This is my prayer for myself. In Jesus' name, amen.